Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hi, Anna here, telling you about Writing Issues, my new website, webinar, and coaching program. To get info about it and to receive my free cheat sheet, The Six Steps to Breaking Through Your Issues and Becoming a New York Times Bestselling Author, all you got to do is text 480-418-1411, the word Writing Issues, all caps, no spaces. That number again is 480-418-1411. You will get a text back asking you to respond with your email address. You do it, and voila, my cheat sheet in your inbox. And you'll be up to speed on all things writing issues. And now, back to the show. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? to After Party Pod with Anna David. It's a podcast about addiction, recovery, mental health, super fun topics. It's released every other Friday, and it's a part of After Party Magazine, which is a part of Rehab Reviews, the world's largest uh, resource for rehab reviews, which is why it's such a good name for it. I'm sitting here with the very special Ryan Hampton. Say hi. It is great to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You people are going to be here. It's going to be a little bit after the new year because we're in a time capsule and you're going to hear it later. And Ryan is not only a spectacular man, but a patient man. And I'm going to tell you this up front. We recorded this episode in 2016 originally. The sound was bad. Something bad happened with the sound. Ryan's voice It wasn't my voice. Exactly. Listen to how gorgeous his voice is. It's not that. And... As some of you who have complained to me in the past know, I am not afraid to release an episode with imperfect sound. However, Ryan is a very popular guy, and I thought this episode had the potential to get passed on a lot. And so I said to him, look, I can either release it with the sound a little janky, or we can re-record it. And he very kindly said, let's re-record. But it has to be perfect, because we're alcoholics. It has, so to, it has be to be perfect. perfect. I know. <laughs> I know. So... So, Ryan, I'm going to pretend, because it was actually such an amazing interview, because I've known you for about a year, and I know you very, like, your public persona, even though I know you personally, but I got to hear all this stuff I didn't know, so now I'm going to have to pretend like I don't know Let's it. do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's, for anybody who listens to this podcast, you probably know who Ryan is, because 
the dude gets around. You had a, a video that like went viral this week. I did. Yeah. Talk about that. It let's... was amazing. I mean, during during the trip last summer, we went to Chesterfield County. Wait, let's uh, tell them to... who you are. <laughs> well, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a person in long term recovery. Um, but uh, I, I I've been advocating. I've been using my voice. I found my voice and I've started to use it and do it through digital means and social media and he was elected delegate, delegate to the democratic to national the democratic national convention. convention and we traveled the country and talked to communities hit hardest by the addiction crisis and um put it on youtube and it, and it went re- really really well and we got addiction across america addiction across america yep hashtag addiction across america got a lot of attention and uh, a lot of public policy leaders and uh, hometown newspapers picked it up and we just kind of rolled with it since because I mean it it this isn't an issue that ended at the DNC or at the election. I mean it, it continues to go on. I mean it's only getting worse, so we have more work to do. But during that trip we stopped at a, a jail, county jail in Virginia, rural Virginia, and there's a peer to peer, authentic peer to peer recovery program going on inside the jail twelve hours a day. And this one particular jail. this what well, well it's it's happening more often in other jails but this particular jail was interesting because it was a not the usual setting you would think where a, a sheriff or a warden would let this type of program in it was very progressive he's paying for it himself he can't get Who's money he? for it his name's uh, Sheriff Carl Leonard uh-huh. he's a Republican um, in a in a very red um, area in Virginia and he said look I'm just sick of the deaths he's like i'm sick of seeing these people go in and either die or come back he's like something has to change and they need a whole new approach so he implemented this 12 hour a day peer-to-peer program called harp heroin addiction recovery program Mm -hmm. and they've got all of the inmates who are admittedly having a problem addicted to heroin specifically um in the same tank and i've never met I could have slept. I mean, I could go back there and like sleep in the tank if I want. I mean, like I've never seen such love in one place and support and it's not medication based. Um, It is it is authentic peer to peer. I mean, it is they detox. They do. They do detox together. Right. They They give them nothing to detox. No, they they. Well, I mean, some of them come in medically detoxed already. Um, but no, they don't do detox there, but they get real support. And, uh, I, when I was there, I met the men and when we were there, he announced, the sheriff announced he was going to start this for the women. And, uh, that was about three months, three or four months ago, um, that he actually started it. And I've been tracking it and talking to these women and hearing about what's going on there. And I, I called the sheriff, uh, this last week, this time I said, sheriff, Let's do a Facebook Live with them. Let's let them tell their stories. Let's kind of let you know other people see what's going on. And uh, it probably was one of the most powerful experiences for me watching these so women he puts share. The camera in there. Yeah, he brought his, he brings his iPhone in and he he lets him use the iPhone and they did a Facebook Live from his iPhone. And then what are you doing? You're coordinating. Um, yeah, I'm just giving them my access to my page. Right, right, right. And it's going on my page. Right. And, um, you know, it went viral in like four hours. Right. You know, I mean, but I mean, it just goes to show, I mean, people are, not only are people thirsty for, for those types of stories, but people want to see that you can recover even from the confines of a county jail if the right supports are there. And it's like, 
no matter how people feel about it, whether it's the Johan Hari thing or the 12-step thing, we all agree, community. Community, 100%. I mean... If it wasn't for my community... I mean, that's been my biggest thing. If it wasn't for my community, I likely would not be sitting here with you today doing this podcast. I mean, you could have given me... I mean, and it's done. I mean, I, you know, I've got a lot of differing opinions on things, but you could have given me as much medication as possible. You could have given me the best therapist. I mean, I've had it, the best therapist in the world. You could have given me all these things, but none of them work unless you've got the right type of community for you. Yeah. The right type of supports for you and everything else. It's not a silver bullet. It has, all of it has to be accompanied by community. Right. That, for me, is the silver bullet. Totally, totally. And it's like, I, I, you just have no way of knowing that. I had no way of knowing that before right. Before I got sober. And I didn't get that, you know, I'm still on 12-step works for me, blah, 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 blah. Right. But, like, I didn't get that it was the community that was, I just knew that I was, like, dying. And I'm like, what? Okay, I should yep. go do this. Get a money. Go there. Clap. Sure. You right. You know, I just did it. Right. I mean, it's, it, 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 and for me, you know, yes, 12 steps for me. I mean, uh, you know, other people, it's other things phenomenal i mean if you're in recovery and you're not using drugs or alcohol today uh bravo however you did it i mean yeah. and and you're in recovery right but without community i i mean gosh it's the one main constant in every program of recovery across the spectrum right. that i see yeah so okay and so your own story is you grew up in this seemingly perfect family i did i did i grew up in a in a in a i guess you could say upper to middle class household um my dad was an executive vice president for one of the most you know uh one of the best at the time uh brokerage firms Payne weber um we lived in a nice house my mom was a stay-at-home mom i had sister that went to west point i was in private school i mean everything was great i mean we vacationed in Vail. we we you know i had the new adidas i had Everything, mm. you know. How many uh, kids in the family? Um, so it's me plus two sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have two half sisters. Um, but yeah, everything everything was seemingly couldn't have been better. And then one day you were like 12? One day. Yeah, I was I was 12 going on 13. One day uh, doorbell rang. We we're all sitting at the family table. Um, I go to answer the door. It was like seven o'clock at night. And um it was a, a guy, two guys with badges, mm-hmm. and I didn't think anything of it. And the one guy, all I remember was the one guy I asked who they were. They asked for my father, it was William Hampton home. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, we're eating dinner. You know, I asked him who it is, and they showed me the badge, and he said, I'm with the U.S. Postal Service. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm 12 years old. I'm like, the hell is the U.S. Postal Service coming to my door for? Like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. I went back and told my parents who was at the door, and they hushed us all to our rooms real quick, and... Uh, mom and dad went to the door and, you know, 45 minutes later came back and I said, well, what was that all about? And I was like, oh, nothing, you know, about something, you know, they're checking in on the neighbors or something like that. And of course I believed it. I was 12 years old, you know, and I didn't think of anything of it after that, you know, but, um, then dad goes on a long trip. Yeah. Dad goes on a long trip. Um, you know, there was, it was kind of a very interesting couple of uh, interesting year, um, dad wasn't working dad was around and then all of a sudden dad was going to india for you know four years to 
take this amazing marketing job and wouldn't be able to come home uh, to see us. So mm-hmm. we were going to be communicating with him over the phone or by letter. And, uh, you know, I don't feel so awful now because like even my grown sisters who were at the time, you know, uh, 17 years old and then north of 20 for my half sisters, we all bought into it. Yeah. We all, I mean, we all, dad was going to India. Yeah. That was it. And, uh, dad left, went to India, you know, when he went to India, my mom, you know, I noticed things were changing. My mom went back to the classroom to teach elementary school and public school, which she had retired from, you know, 15, 20 years prior. Uh, we were missing mortgage payments. Um, you didn't have the new Adidas. I didn't have the new Adidas. I was wearing Kirkland's signature from mm-hmm. Costco. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were eating. I mean, even eating sometimes was, I mean, I can remember my mom making eggs in the morning and then freezing them mm. so that we could go back and, and microwave them for dinner or going on like 29 cent hamburger night and there'd be like 50 burgers in there for the week. Mm-hmm. I mean, things just changed, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I don't know. I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't see you it. Believe what we're told. I, I believe what I was told. You really trusted your parents. And so then yeah. one day the phone rings. One day the, and this was about a year into it. One day the phone rings, uh, Saturday mornings. Uh, there was always a phone call that came through that my mom took and, you know, I, I was just kind of known I didn't answer the phone. Again, I didn't think anything of it. It was early in the morning, 7 a.m. Uh, phone rings. Uh, it, we, we had those, like, big, old uh, caller IDs before they, mm-hmm. you know, were so popular. It was like this huge box, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was unknown, and I answered it. And it was a federal pen- <coughs> federal penitentiary in Pensacola, Florida, which was, mind you, in the same state that I lived. Yep. Um from somebody named Bill and I thought who the hell is Bill and why is somebody calling this house from a federal penitentiary and I hung up the phone mm-hmm. I didn't accept the call I hung up the phone and I went in and I woke my mom up and I, I said this happened and she just I mean just burst into tears mm-hmm. and like still at that moment yeah I didn't like, I was like why so why are you so upset right. you know call. yeah and she sat down and and she told me you know uh Ryan your father's not in India your father's in federal prison and I was the first one of the kids you know at this time 13 years old um you know 13 and a half years old to find out you know and uh the, I mean, just the tremendous amount of guilt that I could see in her face that day was just, I mean, I clearly can remember like where we were sitting, mm-hmm. you know, what, 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 what color the couch was. I mean, mm-hmm. this was a long time ago and I didn't, you know, and I think that may have been like the first indication that something was up in my head um, because I didn't feel anything, you know, really. I didn't feel any emotion. Right. I didn't feel any... Uh, I was very detached. What do you think? So when you say that was the first sign that there was something up in your head, like meaning, meaning that was the first sign of like alcoholism? Because I think so because my my reaction to that moment in time was not uh, to internalize it or to discuss it. It was to you know save face and check out, and I did. I checked out. Not with alcohol at the time, right. but I checked out with other things. I checked out by just 
not being at home, throwing myself into extracurricular stuff, getting a job. Right. You know what I mean? Like spending time away from the like really detaching. I I wonder though. I mean, I do think you know. I told you when we recorded before that my dad uh, got into some legal trouble and didn't go to jail, but uh, you know it's all over the papers and all that right. stuff. And it happened when I was sixteen, and I didn't deal with it i was 16 what was yeah. i gonna do about dad being like a criminal you yeah. know um yeah so but but who knows but i do think you know what kid is gonna what do we what are we supposed to do but don't you feel that like some of those emotions that you suppressed as i mean did you suppress Absolutely. like because i i know for me a lot of the stuff i suppressed i mean there's like a whole nother thing here too i mean like i was you know, in my younger years when things were, and I, we didn't cover this in the last thing, but think when things were like glory days in my family, like I was heavily sexually abused by my cousin. Yeah. And like, I didn't even tell my mom about it until I was 29 years old. And I found out when I told her I was in the depths and I'm kind of jumping around here, but I was in the depths of my heroin addiction. She initially didn't believe me for about a day until she told Another member, because I won't out her, in my family. immediate family, family who the exact same thing during the exact same time yeah. frame happened. And, you know, it was just this whole, like, boom moment in my family, you know? Did anybody confront the cousin? I mean, it's in a strange, yes, um, but in, in a subtle way, it's yeah. in a strange relationship at this point, And I'm, like, in acceptance over it. I'm over it. I, like, I don't fall victim to it. It's, How long did that happen for? I mean, it went on for about three years. How old were you? Mm, between five and eight. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, all of this stuffing, whether it's, you know, the abuse or the trauma of the family. So it just kind of got stuffed and stuffed and stuffed. Right. And you're out there and you were this like you were this little adult kid. basically. Right. Yeah. Adult kid. I was helping take care of my sister. I was that's when I like that's when like the whole political thing kind of for me started because it was like so intense and like so fast paced and like uh, so everything that I liked seeing on television and the ego and like the well you know kind of like buck my dad you know if he's gonna be such a you know whatever about this then I'm gonna go and and do my thing I mean it was kind of rebellion against my family I mean it was my way of rebelling you know and so and so really like literally Bill Clinton was your imaginary father figure yeah yeah which sounds so weird but I mean I mean, so at that time, so this was 92 or 91. This was actually, so this was 92 um, was when everything kind of fell apart. He, you know, President Clinton like became like a real uh, mentor, kind of like father figure to me, you know, going into his reelection 95, 96. Okay, but explain. So you were working. I was working in Miami. I was volunteering on campaigns. I volunteered on his reelection campaign. Uh, President Clinton's brother-in-law, Hillary's two brothers, mm-hmm. uh, Tony and Hugh, ran the Miami office because uh, they're from Miami. Okay, and so like I became like this kid prodigy, and nobody, it was nobody knew how old I was because I looked a lot older than I was at the time, mm-hmm. um, and they thought I was like eighteen, nineteen years old. I was like fifteen, going on sixteen, sixteen when he got reelected, and I was doing all this adult stuff and built these relationships. So like. You know, I started living this crazy 
outside life, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to get away from family. Mm-hmm. But it was also during that time um, while I was working with these adults that I had like my real first drunk, you know, I mean, I was at, and it was with these adults, these adults. So you had never drank. I had, you know, I had dipped into drinking here and there, but I had never gotten drunk. So you guys go out somewhere. Go out. I mean, it was actually, I I can remember, it was the Biltmore Hotel, Miami, Florida. Bill Clinton had just been there for a big fundraiser. You know, we had all worked our tails off all week. It was like the U.S. Secret Service advance team. It was the White House advance team. It was all these people. Nobody knew how old I was. Mm -hmm. Um but it was open bar, you know, president, it's called a wheels up party. It's when the wheels of Air Force One leave the tarmac and, you know, everybody just kind of unwinds and I saw everybody having a great time and I was like, this looks great, you know, and I felt entitled, yeah. of course. And yeah. so I had a drink and another drink and another drink and passed out and stayed at the hotel that night and you know, one of the staff offices and woke up in the morning hung over and I was like, I'm, I... I felt like this rite of passage. I was like, I'm, you know, not only am I, you know, doing all this cool stuff and nobody knows how old I am. And, but you know, I, and I miss school because of this, but you know, I drank with all the adults last night, right? you know, and that quickly though, as soon as that happened, like I gave myself permission to then live this double life. So I was like doing the drinking and the professional stuff, but then I was still in high school at the Mm -hmm. time. So I was drinking with my classmates. I started smoking pot, mm-hmm. you know, very quickly escalated into designer drugs, which were like, as you know, like huge in the 90s, especially right. in Miami, right? Right. So you mean the ecstasy. The ecstasy. Like I was just an ecstasy freak, right? you know, and um, getting into all that. And uh, it all went downhill for me uh, within a period of, I mean, within a period of year, I was, I landed myself into my first rehab, not by choice, but by what's called a Baker act, um, which is like harm to, it's kind of like a 5150 in California. Um, police came and, and took me, didn't arrest me, but took me to a, like a psych ward. What your mom called them? Well, my dad had just gotten home from prison mm-hmm. and I was coming off like a really difficult one. Mm-hmm on ecstasy and my dad came in and said something to me and kind of us, you know, by in a way picked a fight with me Yeah, and uh, threw the first punch. Right. And so I got emotionally, not literally. No, no, no. Literally, literally, literally we got into a fist fight. Um, and it was like a down and dirty fight with my dad. My mom freaked out, called the cops, cops showed up again, like, you know, none of this should be happening. Like our neighbors didn't even know my dad was at the prison. They all thought he had just gotten back from India. Right. Uh, police were like, Hey, somebody has to leave this house tonight. It's a domestic disturbance. And even, and they're like, who started the fight? Right. Even though my mom knew at the time that my dad did. And my dad knew they had a little private meeting outside of my room when I was with the cops and the cops were all like, look, you look like a great, they're like looking at all these pictures and campaign signs. Like what the hell is going on here? And my parents came back in and told them, they're like, yeah, he started the fight. Cause my dad was still on probation. Couldn't you go? Hey cops, my dad's a criminal. I did. And they were like, I wasn't 18 yet. Right. They were, of course they were believing my parents. My right. dad didn't have a violent past. Right. And I was the one on drugs. 
Right. So, like, clearly I was the one in the wrong, you know? And so you got taken away for three days? I got taken away for three days, but I got mandated to um, behavioral health, mm-hmm. uh, Columbia Behavioral Health down there, where I actually did two and a half weeks of um, treatment mm-hmm. um, in a lockdown facility, um, which I'll never forget. I mean, it was mortifying for me. Really? Yeah. It was. I mean, it was the only kid I was the only kid there. I mean, I was 17, but they put me with the adults for some reason. Um, you know, I was roomed with a guy who had just been moved from jail and his entire jaw had been broken and he had a huge, all these wires in his neck because he had had the crap kicked out of him in jail and he was my roommate. Mm. And, and he told me then, I mean, he was like 20 years older than me. He told me, he's like, dude, you don't want to go down this route. Like you're going to end up here again, like me coming from jail. And it, you know, but it didn't – all I wanted to do was get out of there and get back to my life because yeah. I was so much better than and I didn't belong there. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean that's that was my thought process. Um. So, so sorry. I got a tiny bit distracted just because there's some drama with the second recorder. I'm just going to pretend it's not happening because the first recorder is working so perfectly. So you – so you get back. You certainly don't have an inkling that you have a drug or alcohol problem. No, I thought this is just what people did when they were 17, 18 and years old. it was true. It's yeah. just kept doing it. Yeah, at a much – I mean, yeah. I... And, and so <laughs> you um, – like fast forward a, a few years, you you start to build a, a political career as an adult. Yeah, and then you go on a trip to Arizona. Is no, that what happened? Maryland. Maryland. Um, I was I was started building political career. I had interned at the like I took an internship. I worked at the White House and the Clinton administration. After nine eleven, uh, my mom was like, "You got to come back." I mean, I was you know literally blocks away from you know where I, where I was living at the time was blocks away from from where the trade. Trade yeah. Center, I mean, from where the Pentagon was, uh, came back to Florida. Um, it was that summer um, that my father died. And shortly after my dad died, which was like a really difficult thing for me because we never, you know, we, we had just started rekindling our relationship and he had left my mom and was with another woman and this whole other family. And my dad was a mess, just started rekindling. And like he died, impacted me tremendously. Um, I started working in Florida and took a trip. Um, probably. I have a question though. Yeah. So you forgive your dad? You forgave him? Hundred percent. One hundred percent. I how forgave did, him before he died. How did you get there? Was that? Um, uh, some of it was by permission of my mom. I think my mom. My mom's like a saint. She's like one of the most compassionate people you ever meet. And uh, you know, she had told me at one point, and it was a couple months before he died. Hey, your dad. You know. I may not like your dad. I may hate your dad right now, you know, and he's done a lot to like disrupt my life and like my family relationships and all this, but, um, he's still your father, you know? And, and she didn't say that like in an authority way. Mm -hmm. She meant it in like a very compassionate, heartfelt way. Like, you know, you should get to know your dad. You shouldn't be shutting him off. Like he will always be your father. And the one thing my dad Look, he made a lot of bad decisions, um, put my mom through hell, but he was never, I I would say, like, genuinely, I think he was just very caught up in himself and and a narcissist. Mm -hmm. He never meant harm on me or my sisters. Like, Mm -hmm. he loved us with that, Mm -hmm. all he had, and I know that. So I did forgive him and and did start meeting the other family and the new, what was going to be the new wife and having dinner at the house and 
meeting the kids, you know, and like, I mean, it was surreal. I mean, more, but crazier than that was like within three months of like making that pretty big life decision for me at the time was he just dies of a, of a heart attack, you know, Mm -hmm. completely unexpected. And, um, I carried that around for a long time, real long time. And I had gone to, you know, after nine 11, after he died, I, uh, went back to DC to visit my college roommate. We went hiking and I slipped on like a foothill. Mm -hmm. Um, it was wet outside and, um, I slipped and I, I, I split my, my kneecap Mm -hmm. and, um, needed medical assistance. I went to an urgent care and, you know, they had splinted it up and told me everything I needed to do and gave me my, my, what I consider I've, I'd had them before, but like my first real dose of opioids. Right. And that just changed the game. What'd they give you? Um, it, it started out as like a Darvacet. Oh, they don't even have that drug anymore. Yeah. You remember Darvacet? Yeah. That was the first Darvon. Yeah. When I got a migraine headache when I was 16, I had my headache for the 16th year of my life when my dad was getting uh, yeah. in trouble. Um, and they gave me Darvacet. And I was yeah. like, do I just feel good? Because I feel so relieved of my pain. <laughs> like, what is I know. this? Like, I didn't understand that I was high. I didn't either. I mean, I thought that's just what what happened. And you know, the Darvacet then turned into hydrocodone and compound, <coughs> excuse me, compounded with Percocet. And uh, they kept saying, hey, you got to go get this knee fixed. You got to go get surgery. And I was back in Florida at the time. And I'm like, I don't need to get my knee fixed. You know, I'm, I kept telling him, I'm like, I'm going to walk it off. You know, I'm just going to walk because this off. Because you wanted to keep the drugs? Because I wanted to keep the drugs. Right. Unconsciously. I was telling myself that I didn't have time for surgery, but Mm -hmm. at the same time I was on pain management. Mm -hmm. Um, And that went on for a couple of years and I, you know, became heavily addicted to, you know, these prescription medications and I was in South Florida and, you know, this was going on between 2003 to 2007, 2008. If you know anything about the history of South Florida during those times, it was, I mean, that's Oxycontin Express. I mean, mm. you know, I mean, it was that I-4 corridor, you know, from Kentucky down to South Florida. And I just jumped. I took advantage of that at every angle what I could. What does that mean, the, the I-4 Express? Now, so there. it's it, it's the, the I-4 that goes up Florida and then it goes through the southern states. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that was kind of where they were running. Uh, people were coming in from other states and coming to South Florida, getting medications because and taking them to the other doctor, states. Because it was like pill mills. And it was pill mills. Just... It was unregulated. Yeah. Completely unregulated. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I got more and more into it. How um, much were you taking a day? Oh, God, I don't remember. I was, I mean, way too much. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, we're talking like, you know, I, I would take like two weeks worth of a prescription and be done with it in two days, two or three days. And do you remember what those days or you were just, I mean, some of them. Yeah. I mean, cause I got my tolerance level was, I mean, I, I quickly went from getting high to being like dependent, like right. 100% addicted dependent. And I, you know, there was a moment, um, when I was still working in 2004, when I went to work and I didn't even real, I didn't know it again, I knew I was doing something wrong. I knew that it was bad, but I thought, I mean, I can't, I think back to it. I'm like, what was I thinking with everything I know today? I know. But I mean, I was taking a medication out of a bottle and my name was on it. And like, I thought that was okay. And I remember telling myself, 
well, if somebody just, if I just have this bottle with me all the time with my name on it, that's legal, then my life's going to be great. Right. Like I'm going to get so much done because I'm so much more creative and like I can happy. like happy and like nothing's wrong and like all this stuff. And I can remember running out of my prescription too fast one day, uh, going into my office and just sweating it out sitting at my desk and I'm like so sick and it was like rainy outside and I'm like what's wrong with me like I feel so sick mm-hmm. and I went into the bathroom and put some water on my face and I looked in the mirror and I was like oh my god like I'm hooked like this is this is this must be what addiction is like mm-hmm. because I wasn't thinking to myself I have a problem. I need to go to rehab or I need to go tell my doctor. I need to reach out and tell my mom. Like the first thing on my mind was how do I get get well? Yeah. You know, and what do I need to do? Yeah. And that like feeling of like, how do I get well? What do I need to do to get well? Didn't stop. And so then you got basically busted. You got put on one of those lists. Right. Yeah. So one day you go to one a doctor. One of the worst days ever. And yeah. And they're like, sorry. They look you up in a computer and they go, sorry, Ryan. Yeah. And the funny thing was, though, is I was going to that same doctor for a long time. And by this time, by the end of this thing, I was intravenously using my medications, not heroin at the time, but medications. And they would take my blood pressure and they would see yeah. and like they wouldn't say anything. Wow. But they started this database, and because my name was in the database, the doctor called me in and was like, um, you're seeing you know, four other doctors. Don't come back here, and you know, we're discharging you, and here's your discharge papers, and if you show back up on this premise, we're going to have you arrested. Wow. And, I, and I, like, I was freaked out. I was like, okay. You know, never once did the doctor say, do you have a problem? Right. Um, or we know you have a problem right. or you should go check out rehab. a support group or rehab. rehab. No. Yeah. No, yeah. Never, never once did yeah. a doctor say rehab. Doctors don't. And the thing even today, like we're getting better, you know, as a country, but still doctors are so uneducated about like what substance use disorder treatment should be or even what it is. Wait, well, my psychiatrist, and I'll say his name because he's still out there as like an addiction expert god mm-hmm. help us dr terry egan was hit my psychiatrist's mm-hmm. name and he told me that he couldn't see me anymore and he thought i knew why and gave me like enough ambient to kill myself <sighs> my antidepressants and off i went and oh. then he sent me a bill when i got sober and i wrote him and i said if you send me another bill i'm reporting you to the ama mm. um, i never heard from him again but never said rehab Never. No, I mean, it's not in their vocabulary. Yet so many people I know who are sober yeah. say that their therapist said to them, I'm not going to see you anymore unless you go to treatment. Right. So, I yeah. mean, I do think MD, MDs are the worst. And- I do, too. I think there's like a huge uh, learning curve for MDs. But, I mean, uh, getting off topic for just two seconds here, yeah. um, what do we expect when you look at uh, – Medical school. Yeah. Talk to any doctor and be like, how much training did you get on there's addiction like, in medical school? There's like a seminar. One, like a 30-minute seminar. Yeah. Like, Dr. Drew talks about that. It It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So what do we expect, you know? I know. I know. Well, so, okay, and so then you turn just to heroin. Turn to heroin immediately. Yeah. And everything fell apart. And you were shooting heroin. Shooting heroin, homeless, couldn't keep a job. In Florida. In Florida, homeless, on the streets. Um, doing things I never thought I'd do. Yep. You know, I mean, we all kind of know the story. I, I don't think any of our, our heroin, anybody who's used 
heroin i mean they, they may vary in different parts but they're not really that unique right um it got really bad yeah yeah it got really bad and i i it got so bad in fact i mean that went on for three or four years that in in 2012 when i made my first honest attempt at, at getting clean and getting into recovery I mean, I was living on the couch of, of my heroin dealer and his girlfriend, and I was hustling every day to get money to get heroin. And they looked at me, and they, and he was like, like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, I'm going to break you off right now, dude. But, like, you don't want to do – like, you're going to die or, or – Your like, heroin dealer said that to you? Yeah. My heroin dealer found the treatment – the public treatment center – and it's a weird thing. Like I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for this guy. He's not clean today. His life's a mess, and his his girlfriend is clean. But his girlfriend and him found the public treatment center that would take me with no money, no insurance. Um, called them, made the arrangements for me, drove me to treatment, dropped me off, and were like, "You can do this." Why? I don't know. I just remember his girlfriend telling. It's a weird story, but his girlfriend's sitting me down like before I walked into that center, like we're both crying and she's like, don't look at us. Don't look at our life. But like if you can get clean and you can get sober, like which is something that we're having such a hard doing time doing together as a couple, obviously, but like you can help so many people and just just do something. And now she's sober. Now she's two years sober. Which is amazing. And then you ended up sort of washing ashore at Pasadena Recovery Center. Yeah. And that's where it really kicked in. That's where it really kicked in. Yeah. And um and I just read your we're gonna be running on after party or how I got sober. So I just it was really well written. Thank you. And so I know that Mike Bloom, who who owns Pasadena Recovery Center, like you know, cut you a break or whatever, let in. He's a great guy. And then Shelly, who people might know from Celebrity Rehab, was your counselor. Shelly saved my life. And so then um, you end up, you still live in Pasadena, correct? I do. And I so. Do. Again, back to the community. Like. Right, We right. made the decision, my roommate and I, who also got sober in Pasadena. And this is Garrett. Garrett, yeah. And he's like your partner, your work partner on all, yeah. all this stuff. Everything, yeah. He was yeah. in the show. Yep. The, he drove cross country with you. Yep. He's your right hand. Yep. And, um, and I know from reading your How I Got Sober that he was the one who said to you. Yeah. Dude, you got to do this. Yeah, and he wasn't sober at the time, which was crazy. Right. He was he was drinking. He didn't have a heroin problem at the time, but I mean, I did. And he came in uh, before I was the day before I was getting kicked out of my apartment, and I'm dope sick, and I'm sitting laying on the couch, and he came in, and he he was riding a bike at the time. He had his bike helmet in his hand, and mm-hmm. I mean, he, Garrett, like, look, Garrett's a great guy. I mean, but I mean, he back then, like, if he he, he had an angry side, you know, and he I can't he, that. he, oh gosh, <laughs> he, he came in and he he held the helmet in his head hand, and he said, "If you don't get off that couch, I don't care how dope sick you are, and you don't walk yourself to a meeting across the street." Or get yourself into some sort of program. I don't care if you have to wait outside to get into a public program or whatever. He goes, we are going to get in the biggest fight right now. Mm -hmm. Like physical fight. Not because I want to fight you or hurt you or have you hurt me. But because it's going to be the only way to get the cops to show up here. And I'll have the money to bail out. You won't. And hopefully you can at least detox in somewhere safe. Because you're going to die. Like Garrett would – when I was out there, he – uh, he used to call me um, when I was doing my thing and he would ride his bike 
up and down San Pedro and Skid Row and like just looking for me. You know, I mean, just looking for me and like. So it's so interesting in your story. It's like there are all these little like not to be sappy, but angels, you know, from your mom. Yeah. To the drug dealer's girlfriend. Mike Bloom to Shelly to Garrett. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Yeah, I'm grateful. I mean, I think, you know, and it, it, I didn't even realize that until recently, you know, and it's like every person in my community, though, now in my recovery community, I mean, and there's so many more than that, you know, even in recovery, there's like all these angels around me all the time. But like when you live in recovery, yeah, like that's not just true for me. That's true for everybody, I think. Absolutely. I I feel like for me, I didn't discover them until I actually got, got better. Exactly. Until I ended up in the rooms. Yeah. Until I ended up in rehab, actually. That's right. Which is where I met like my first, my counselor. Yep. Um, But yours, your whole story is dotted with these people, which may have a lot to do with how you've made this your mission in life. Yeah. To do that for other people. Yeah. Like, it's really coming from a real place. It's not like you're like, oh, this is a good politically savvy career move. No, this not at all. This is your life. This is my life. And, like, I would tell you, like, I honestly, I, I mean, the politics of it, like, look, I mean, I, it's not like I'm getting into politics anymore. Even working in the political field, like, there's, like, a huge void in the politics of addiction. Right. Right? And, like, I figured out, I didn't figure out, other people figured out, I'll say that, like, the having a voice there is important because you can help a lot of people. And I will say like one of the most gratifying things, like I, like a lot of stuff's happened on social, a lot of stuff with the media, but I've had a lot of people reach out to me that I've never met before. I mean, on the daily yeah, that send me their stories, people that are like, I don't have any money. And like, thank you for sharing your story and I won't get into it. But like, uh, this has been a game changer for me. And like, like I, I need help. And I don't know what to do. And like as a result of the trip and as a result of like all these things coming together, you know, there's public facilities in different states that like people will take without ID or or even having a name and they'll get you help, like good help, good places. And uh, there was a guy who reached out to me last week from uh, Kentucky two days ago, two or three days ago, actually. And he said, what do I do? And I, I got a friend of mine on the phone who's in New Hampshire and She's like, look, if you can get a ticket to New Hampshire, because I can't pay for your ticket, but if you can show up here, like, we're going to take you, we're going to help you, and we're going to keep you as long as you need, and and we're going to help get you a job after, like, the whole continuum of care, as it should be, and he, he sent me a snapshot, like, five minutes after I talked to him of his Expedia ticket, and his counselor reached out to me yesterday, and, like, he went and he did it, and he had, like, a huge meth problem, and he's like, this saved my life, and, like, that above anything... I mean, like, I go and I tell Garrett, and, like, I'm, like, literally in tears. I'm, like, this makes it all worth it. Totally. And, and, and by the way, it happens every week from someone who listens to this podcast, the yeah. same thing. Yep. And because, you know, for me, you know, it's it's been everything from meeting people at meetings. And int- a lot of them are guys I introduce to other guys who are right. who then, you know, but also because uh, edit rehab reviews – yeah. We're able to help put so many people in treatment. Oh, yeah. And people don't understand. If you're listening and you think that you need $30,000 to go to rehab, that is not true. There right. are so many that yep. are free. There are so many yep. that take people on scholarship. Yeah, and we need, like, good – the thing is, is, like, Anna, like, we need good people in this space who can help 
normal people navigate this system right because it is i mean right it is such a mess like we need help navigating it i still need help navigating it and like i've been doing this for a while i mean right. it is just so it's confusing confusing and lots of yeah. subterfuge yeah and lots of um yeah. you know there's a lot of money a lot of money it's a 35 billion dollar per year industry yeah it's right. huge so, okay, as we get towards wrapping up, is there, okay, so people can find you uh, where? Sure. Um, I mean, they could find me on Facebook, uh, mm-hmm. Ryan Hampton, but the tag is Addiction X America. Mm-hmm. Um, they could find me on Twitter at Ryan for Recovery. They can find me on Instagram at Ryan J. Hampton. Um, anybody that hits me up, love talking to you yeah. guys. It's, reach out, say hi. Um I follow back also. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I want to hear your stories. It's not all about like my story. It's more about your story. So share it. Right. Um, You know, and I I also want to plug Facing Addiction. Yeah. Okay. And you are involved with the Greg Williams. Yeah. Greg Williams and FacingAddiction.org. I mean, they it's been uh, the recovery movement that that's really been emerging, um, you know, nationally with their platform. Uh, that really, I mean, a- again, like another angel, like it was that platform and, and like the Greg Williams of the world that like showed me that, uh, you know, our stories have power and right. we can use them to help others. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for time number two. Aren't you glad? Wasn't this even better? Yep. Like the first one was good. <laughs> this was great. Guys, I, I mean, you'll never hear that first one. It might be a collector's edition. <laughs> Ryan Williams is world famous as he should. Um, so thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Again, this is After Party Pod, a part of After Party Magazine, which is part of Rehab Reviews. To find out more about the podcast, go to afterpartypod.com, and I'll see you next time.